0: If you look at workers' face, they're very young, but after working three, four years, start to lose their youth, their beauty from their face because they have to work more than eight hours.
1: There are still a lot of people, a lot of workers who are seeing their livelihoods kind of hang in this political balance. And I am really interested in following their stories and seeing what happens.
2: I see continued growth in the labor movement. It seems to me that younger workers see the value of being in a union. They see this as their ticket to a larger piece of the pie and they're not afraid to tell management what they need from them to stay
3: working there. A really large percentage of the black people killed by the police or brutalized by the police were along the commercial corridors or on the boundary line between a black neighborhood and a white neighborhood.
4: You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, produced by the Labor Radio Podcast Network, laborradionetwork.org. I'm Chris Garlock. This week's featured shows are Stick Together, Australia's only national radio show focusing on industrial, social, and workplace issues distributed nationally on the community radio network. The Power at Work podcast from the Power at Work blog, which is produced by the Byrne Center for Social Change. Heartland Labor Forum, a radio show which comes to us from KKFI 90.1 FM, Kansas City Community Radio, and Tales from the Ruther Library, the labor history podcast from the Walter P. Ruther Library at Wayne State University. That's all ahead on this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show.
5: Bangladeshi textile workers in the ready-made garment industry have been taking industrial action for most of this year in pursuit of an increase in the minimum wage to meet soaring prices on basic commodities owing to an economic inflation crisis. These protests have been met with fierce repression, including reports of at least four workers having been killed by police and more than 11,000 being charged with violence and vandalism. The Bangladeshi government is using violence, torture, disappearances and arrests to try to stifle what is the biggest uprising of garment workers in over a decade. And meanwhile, workers remain malnourished and struggling to meet the basic requirements of life. I spoke with the President of Bangladesh Garment Workers Solidarity, Taslima Akhtar. Uh, for
0: last uh, one year, more than one year, we have been campaigning for uh, increasing wage of Bangladeshi garment workers. Uh, You know that Bangladeshi garment workers are now getting only eight thousand taka, which is very close to seventy-three dollar. We have been demanding for last one year for twenty-five thousand taka, uh, which is close to two hundred fifteen dollar. For the price hike and inflation, it is very difficult for garment workers to survive with only eight thousand taka. Can you tell us a bit about working conditions? for Bangladeshi garment workers. In Bangladesh, more than 4 million workers are working in this sector, and near about 60% are women. But um, after Rana Plaza, uh, collapse and Tazrin fire, you know that more than 100 workers died in 2012 uh, when Tazrin fire happened. And just after a few months uh, in 2013, Uh, Rana Plaza collapse happened and more than 1,000 workers died, and after that, uh, we thought that maybe um, our workers uh, will get a new life, Uh, but uh, we see that uh, after uh, Rana Plaza, our owner, entrepreneur, um, government, and international brands, all of them are trying to say that they are more conscious about the wage, the safety and trade union rise. But all these promises um, are in paper, but not in practice. We saw some, uh, we see some difference uh, after Rana Plaza, especially uh, some development of our industry infrastructure. In last few years, we haven't seen that much big incident or structural killing in garment industry. But if you look at workers' face, they are very young, but after working three, four years, start to lose their youth, their beauty from their face because they have to work more than eight hours. As per law, they have to work eight hours and they can do four hours overtime, but they bound to do overtime without doing overtime. They cannot survive with the wage scale and our trade union is highly polluted in our country. So Bangladeshi garment workers are facing many problems, like their wage problem, safety problem, and trade union problem. Especially sometimes our owners want to say safety is related with the factory infrastructure and other things, but we don't think that safety is only related with the building in infrastructure. Safety also depends and related with, Workers wage their daily life, uh, their working environment with all this. But we don't think that uh, uh, our workers are living in a good life. Actually, most of the workers, they come from remote village uh, with the hope of have a new life. But they have to work more than 12 hours, 14 hours, and they don't have enough weekend. Female workers, they have to finish their household work and also they have to do the factory worker work. So uh, they are burdened by two types of uh, load uh, at home and at factory.
5: That's it for Stick Together this week. Special thanks to Taslima Akhtar, the President of Bangladesh Garment Workers Solidarity. Hello,
6: powerful people. Welcome back to the Power at Work blog. And this blogcast. So great to have you back here. We had three terrific labor reporters to our long list of guests in these labor reporter roundtables today. Uh, we, it's an ongoing conversation about labor news, labor developments, the labor movement, and the process of covering workers and worker power and collective action and, and unions. Our guests for this conversation are Kim Kelly, who's an independent journalist and author and organizer. Uh, Michael Senato is a labor reporter for The Guardian US. Uh, And Jordan Zakarin is a reporter and producer for More Perfect Union. What is the next big labor story in 2024 that we
7: are not talking about
6: in 2023? Real quick, Michael.
7: Oh, that's a, a difficult question, but I, I think that the, what we're not talking about in 2023 is just next year coming to ahead uh, all these big union campaigns, how will the NLRB respond? Because a lot of like Starbucks appeals, Amazon appeals, they're at their last appeal. So it's going to be, uh, we're going to, you know, finally see, uh, okay, uh, Starbucks, uh, you know, lost their final appeals and not bargaining, Amazon, uh you know they're still fighting the the union election uh that workers won staten island and they're still fighting the rerun the second rerun election in alabama so we'll we'll get answers to that and i think what happens in in those cases it it might it's not going to get as much attention as uh when those first things first happen but i i think uh how the nlrb how the government responds and uh, what if any accountability um, you know Amazon and, and Starbucks and, and similar companies like Trader Joe's, you know Chipotle. That's gotten away with a lot of uh, union busting. Um, seeing those the legal processes and their uh, appeals finally come to a head, and uh, whether there's going to be some resolution, you know that will benefit workers, or if it's just going to be like, uh, you know, too bad. Uh, you know, that's the way it is. So yeah. uh, I think that's, that's, that's a good one. A big story for it for next year. That, that's a good one.
6: Jordan, big story in 2024. We're not talking about the biggest story in 2024. We're not talking about in 2023.
8: Yeah, I mean, I was going to agree with Michael, like get where they get contracts or not. A lot of these places are going to be huge. Um, both for like those works themselves, the ability to organize continuously. If, if like, you know, Starbucks ends up not having a contract that is sort of like, um, there's so many thousands of stores that just aren't going to organize. Um, I think also one thing I've always been I've been very intrigued by is if we look at the 2024, obviously the elections are so important. Um, I'm very intrigued by this idea that you know Republicans are trying to be populist now and they're they're all are pro worker and obviously I don't think that's at all true. But I, I'm very interested to see how the rhetoric that's used, right? And know Biden like Kim said the one good thing that he's done, maybe the one thing you recommend a second term is a, a, another NLR, another NLRB under under uh, his under his watchful eye. But um, how much that you know this rhetoric is going to shift? Because I think that you know how much like Polls are going to shift, right like you've seen like jd vance try and you know secretly probably got the uh the train track uh, the train uh deal that he, he came up with the railroad deal but i'm very curious just to know like how much politicians are picking up on it whether they are democrats or republicans right like there is this element of like traditionally De- uh unions you know um support democrats and i think that like you know they have in a lot of ways like you know Biden, especially, I think has been good about that. But there's still plenty of them that don't. Democrats don't, definitely don't turn out in the way that they should. And I think a lot of union members are up for grabs. And I think that, like, you know, Trump tried to exploit it during the UAW uh, thing, and he kind of got his clock cleaned because he went to a non-union shop with no union workers there. So um, that that was a big fail. But, um, you know, we're still seeing, you know, Republicans are still powered by the Koch brothers. And I guess there's only one Koch now, the Koch, the Koch guy. Um, but you know, um, the, I, I, so yeah, that, I think that's really, that will be interesting to me, like how much rhetoric changes and how much the policy could change after that because,
6: um, that's- yeah. that's 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 intriguing so you were not persuaded by josh hawley going to the picket line you didn't that the republican party has moved all the way over to be pro-union that well, didn't he, persuade he, you
8: i'm still learning how to be a man from him so once i'm done with that i'm gonna see very, what he does with labor
6: very, very good <laughs> well maybe you could do a workshop or something yeah. kim kim what's the big story labor story of 2024 that we're not talking about in 2023
1: i certainly hope people will be talking about it i think we'll be talking about it for the next few years like the next decade probably um is this idea of the just transition and what we're seeing in terms of this slow but kind of in unstoppable shift towards renewable energy uh, i've spent the past couple years covering coal miners in the deep south and in appalachia and one way to become very interested in the plans for the workers who are involved in these extractive industries as we move towards a, a greener future is to talk to a lot of coal miners yeah. <laughs> and to talk to oral refinery workers in the bay and in the um on the Gulf. Like I'm I'm interested in seeing what actual concrete solutions are gonna be proposed and perhaps even implemented or offered to the workers that are gonna be left behind for this. I mean we saw some I mean there's been some chatter about it already because of what happened with the UAW contract with the um the the battery the battery operating plants being pulled under their master agreement. That's a big deal. And I'm just wondering I'm sure a lot of people smarter than me are wondering okay but where do we go from here as you know as time goes on as the world continues to burn we got to make some changes we all know that but there are still a lot of people a lot of workers who are seeing their livelihoods kind of hang in this political balance and I am really interested in following their stories and seeing what happens because obviously we need to change a whole bunch of stuff but I want to make sure that you know my my friends in, in Maitland, well West Virginia, aren't left behind because there are a lot of yeah. people that have been left behind in this country. And that's how we get into these political messes that continue to consume us right now.
6: Yeah. And you, let me just say, your reporting already on that issue, I think, has been absolutely essential. It's a worker level uh, journalism about one of the most important issues <laughs> in our society right now. Can't thank you enough for being here. Drops of water, journey.
5: Welcome to the Heartland Labor Forum,
0: a weekly show of news, information, and commentary by and for the working people of Kansas City. On tonight's show, we're looking back and forward, back to our predictions for 2023 that we did on our January 5th show at the the beginning of this year, and forward to 2024.
2: I'm Tom Gebkin, president of the Communication Workers of America Local 6360 here in Kansas City and a volunteer on this show. When I look into the crystal ball for 2023, I see a labor movement continuing to gain momentum. A labor-friendly NLRB will continue to put workers ahead of corporate interest. This will make it a little easier for those who are currently in a non-union workplace and want to become
9: union to organize those jobs. I'm Stephen Hill. I'm a volunteer with the Heartland Labor Forum. I live in Blue Springs, and my prediction for labor in 2023 is we're going to be more disappointed with government response to labor demands and as a result of this disappointment we're going to hear more about strikes we're going to hear about illegal strikes and maybe even general strikes that's uh, hope for the future there as Big Bill Haywood would say, you know, all we got to do is put our hands in our pockets and we've got them licked.
10: It's Harold Phillips. I'm a SAG-AFTRA member living in Washington State, not the other Washington. And I'm the co-host of the Working to Live in Southwest Washington podcast, produced by the Southwest Washington Central Labor Council. So, if we're looking forward to what we can expect in 2023, I think the answer is pretty simple. A lot more action. If what we've seen this year and the year before is any example, we know that working people are fed up. And they're willing to stand together in order to make big changes in their workplaces and in their communities.
4: Hi. I'm Michael Savoie, retired teamster and a programmer on the Heartland Labor Forum. I see the unmistakable rise in a consciousness of good citizenship across all segments of our population, young and old, advantaged and disadvantaged. Employee and employer are becoming increasingly aware of the absolute necessity of their personal role as active citizens.
2: This is Mark Galus. I'm a labor lawyer and a volunteer on the Heartland Labor Forum in Kansas City. I think that the National Labor Relations Board will revive the Joy Silk Doctrine. Essentially, it's an NLRB case from 1949, which said that if the union has majority support through signed authorization cards, the employer was required to recognize the union unless there was a good faith doubt about majority support. Therefore, you would forego an election and just recognize the union.
0: Our first prediction for this coming year is from Chris Garlock from the Labor Radio Podcast Network. And it's about something near and dear to our hearts, hearts, which is labor radio. Take it away.
4: Hey, this is Chris Garlock. In addition to coordinating the Labor Radio Podcast Network, I host and produce a number of labor radio shows and podcasts, including the labor radio podcast daily and weekly editions the labor heritage power hour and labor history now for 2024 i see at least 250 members of the labor radio podcast network in the year ahead maybe even 300 i see our first ever in-person conference in april at labor notes and this may be a stretch, but I think 2024 is the year when we'll finally get the Labor Radio Podcast Network app, which will enable anyone, anywhere to easily access all of our shows. In the meantime, you can go to laborradionetwork.org. You can also subscribe to the Labor Radio Podcast daily or weekly on your favorite podcast platform.
7: Solidarity forever.
4: This is Gene Lance on the Workers Beat Extra. Because the voting situation and the voting outlook is so bad as you go into November, I think Joe Biden won't run. I predicted that last year, too. And I'm sticking to it this year.
2: Hello, I'm Tom Gibkin. I'm president of CWA Local 6360 here in Kansas City. I see continued growth in the labor movement. It seems to me that younger workers see the value of being in a union. They see this as their ticket to a larger piece of the pie, and they're not afraid to tell management what they need from them to stay working there. They are prepared to leave any job to get the respect they demand.
9: I'm Stephen Hill, a volunteer for Heartland Labor Forum. And in 2024, I think we're going to uh, continue to see organized labor, uh, the momentum behind it increasing as people, more and more people realize that it's the quickest way to get your voice heard if you come together, talk back to the boss, as it were.
6: Here in the
0: studio, we've got Mark. What do you have to say about 2024?
2: I do think that the National Labor Relations Board will outlaw captive audience meetings this year. What do you have
4: to
0: say, Judy Morgan? I predict that UAW will start that organizing effort of non-union auto plants in the next year. Union recognition may take more than one year, but
3: I believe that the time is right for the UAW to be successful, especially under the leadership
0: of Sean Fain. We have one more, and this is from Saul Schneiderman
11: Hi, this is Saul Schneiderman, the editor of Friday's Labor Folklore. Here are two famous Gramsci quotes to think about in 2024. The old is dying, he said, and the new cannot yet be born. In this interregnum, or interval, a great variety of morbid symptoms appear. You think one of those morbid symptoms might be workers voting Republican? An AFL-CIO official once said to me that a worker voting Republican is like a chicken voting for Colonel Sanders. But could this happen in 2024? And the second Antonio Gramsci quote is this, my mind is pessimistic, but my will is optimistic. This has been called the pessimism of the intellect, the optimism of the will. Whatever happens in 2024, my friends, we're surely going to need strong-willed leaders like Sean Fain and a determined rank-and-file membership in our unions. Hey, so let's get to work. And Happy New Year, everyone.
0: You have been listening to the Heartland Labor Forum, a show by and about workers, our workplaces, and our labor movement.
12: Hello and welcome to Tales from the Ruther, a podcast coming to you from the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs on the campus of Wayne State University in the center of the great city of Detroit. I am Dan Galadner, your host, and I am with our amazing Troy Eller English. We will be talking with Professor Matt Lasseter, who received his PhD at the University of Virginia in 1999, who now teaches at the University of Michigan. He is also the director of the Policing and Social Justice History Lab and coordinator of the Environmental Justice History Lab, each of which involves undergraduate students researchers to collaborate public engagement projects. And we will be talking about his policing and social justice history lab project in the multimedia digital exhibit called Detroit Under Fire that documents police brutality from 1957 to 1973. But more importantly, it discusses the the resolve of the civil rights and black power groups who demanded accountability for systemic police violence. Um, Matt, thanks so much for joining Tales for the Ruther Library. We really appreciate you taking the time to um, talk to us today. Thank you very
3: much for inviting me.
12: Now, Detroit Under Fire is a major website of learning, which took a lot of effort, I know. How did you come up with the idea for this project and the steps to really getting it going? Because some other people might find that of interest.
3: So after the 2014 protests and. Ferguson, Missouri, and Michael Brown killing. And there was a lot of attention to police violence and how little we actually know about what is happening. And I started thinking, what if we did a research project getting back into the history of this? And around the same time, there was a lot of discussion in history departments around the country about the need to get students out of the classroom, into the archives, doing collaborative projects, not just writing a research paper that. The professor is the only one who's going to read, but doing something for public audiences, and so I was really wondering what would be a good project, and it seemed like the history of Detroit, the history of policing, and community activism in Detroit. I knew about the Ruther Library nearby, the Burton Collection, and the Detroit Public Library has has Coleman Young's papers and other papers there, and and so. It was really a project to get undergraduate students to become historians and scholars, uh, you know, together. And, and the initial research question was how many people did the police and law enforcement in Detroit kill during the civil rights movement? Mm-hmm. Uh, civil rights era really from the late 50s to the early 70s, but that expanded dramatically. In terms of the website because we found so much in the archives about activism and protests and individual cases and so it it became a sprawling you know it's a the website's probably longer than a book yeah and it was really about mobilizing the power of undergrads to do archival research and then present it to the public through maps and a, a website that includes the archival documents that we found.
12: Um, let's talk about your website. I mean, the your, your nuts and bolts of it. I mean, when our users go and click on it and discover what are they going to find? What, what kind of how is it structured? Um, they're going to find some fascinating documents, they're going to find some haunting material. How interactive is it?
3: The website starts in 1957, and we chose that year because the NAACP and the ACLU launched launched a campaign for civilian oversight of the police department. And it's really when the anti-police brutality movement in Detroit revved back up as part of the national civil rights movement. And... There were plenty of instances of protests against the police before, but we really started in the late 50s and we ended it in 1973 when Coleman Young got elected and the police department came under black political control. So it goes from the late 50s to the early 70s, roughly the traditional civil rights era. Probably the highlight of the website is the maps. We located every police killing other police brutality incidents, and various other historical events that um, in the actual physical space where they happen. So you can click on a dot on the map and a pop-up box will tell you uh, what happened there, who got killed at this address. And the maps are based in either the racial segregation of the city or the economic, Segregation and economic distinctions of the neighborhoods, which allows viewers to really recognize the patterns that most of the people killed were were either killed in Black neighborhoods, but this is one of the most important findings of the mapping. A really large percentage of the Black people killed by the police or brutalized by the police were actually brutalized in the downtown and midtown what we now call midtown detroit areas or along the commercial corridors or on the boundary line between a black neighborhood and a white neighborhood and the mapping shows that police violence in detroit was not primarily something that happened inside the poorest black neighborhoods but it was something that happened along the color line or in the downtown and midtown business districts. And it was much more about maintaining racial segregation, uh, trying to impose a, really a white supremacist order on the city. And that, that, I think, is one of the most important findings
12: of the project. It, it really was. I caught myself going down the rabbit hole with these maps and discovered the same thing. It was like, hold it, there is a connection here to the lines. And it's, and I'm sure a lot of other cities in the United States see can see the same thing if they map it out as well.
4: And that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. As usual, just a small sample of the amazing programs aired over the last week or so on more than 200 labor radio and podcast shows. They're all part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network shows that focus on working people's issues and concerns. We've got links to all the network shows, laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them. Use the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, X, Facebook, Instagram, whatever you want to call it. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, edited this week by Patrick Dixon. I produce the show, our social media guru, as always is mr harold phillips for the labor radio podcast weekly this is chris garlock urging you to stay active and of course stay tuned to your local labor radio podcast show happy holidays and we'll see you next week